You are listening to the Aaron Evans podcast. This podcast is for the skinny dippers, the seekers, the stargazers, those that want to dream big, bet high, fall in love again and again, those that want to break free and know their highest self. Thank you for your attention. You can follow me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Evans or check out my website, AaronEvansYoga.com. Buckle up and thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome. You've likely heard about a vulnerability hangover where you share something really close to your heart, maybe something that you haven't yet processed and then you regret it. I never share anything with the people I speak to unless I have metabolized it, processed it, and then it no longer belongs to me so that I can perhaps support someone going through a similar scenario. Today's conversation is an intimate one, personal, deep, and something that took a lot of my youth away from me. Today, we'll be talking about attachment styles and eating disorders and how they interconnect and play. And I am joined with two of my favorite beings on the planet. Kelsey Loomer was a student of mine first, then became a dear friend and a teacher. Lydia Zamorano is the reason I became a yoga teacher. She is one of my nearest and dearest. She inspires me every day. She is a mother and a climber and a poet and a seeker. And she defies all laws of gravity on her hands on the rock wall as a mother and as a human. Welcome to the show. And Kels, why don't you start us off telling us a little bit about who you are and this topic for you. Thank you, Erin. Um, so I am a yoga teacher, a teacher. I work right now as a youth care worker with students in grades seven, eight, nine. And I am currently also studying counseling psychology. So I do have a history of both eating disorders and a love for psychology, which I think is an interesting kind of intersection. And so I'm currently studying the attachment styles theory and also applying that through the lens of the psychopathologies of eating disorders. And my curiosity is when we're looking at eating disorders or disordered eating, how detachment styles, so how we've grown up, um, just learning how to relate to other people, how that kind of lays the foundation for an eating disorder. So my kind of thoughts are if you are growing up in an environment where there's no, there's a lack of support to develop a secure attachment, that opens up the doors or the foundation for developing an insecure attachment. And there's two types or three types of insecure attachments. One is anxious attachment. Another is avoidant attachment. And then there's the kind of elusive attachment style that's called disorganized. So you can actually be both at varying times. And so my kind of studies right now has drawn me into this idea that attachment styles 
the insecure kinds, they kind of lay the foundation for eating disorders. And these can be triggered by people, environments, something along the line when you're growing up as an adolescent and very often in your kind of young adult years when you're super vulnerable. And how this relates to how you relate to the world and to yourself. So that's, I'm just really interested in that. Um, I'm also looking at, you know, types of therapy that can help support people with this. So I, I have a very vested interest. Mm, beautifully put. And can you dive a little bit deeper into the attachment styles or how one would recognize what they are? Yes. Okay. So anxious attachment, you can kind of consider this one you don't feel whole on your own. So you feel the need to be with another all of the time. Um, when you're alone by yourself, you might feel how it's titled anxious. You might feel nervous, scared, and like something's missing. And when you're in relation to other, and this doesn't have to be a partnership. This can be with your parents, your children, your friends at work. You feel the need to please. To, to lean in and if if someone's having a bad day and that you interact with that person and they maybe treat you a little bit differently and then they walk away from you, you might feel like their bad mood is, is your fault. So you feel the need to kind of grasp at another. You maybe don't feel whole by yourself. And then avoidant attachment is pretty much the opposite. So whenever you get close to someone, they start telling you how much they appreciate you or love you, you immediately back away. You need space because you're not comfortable with this kind of, I guess, leaning in from another person and you shut down. So anxious attachment would be considered hyper-emotional, whereas avoided attachment is taking the emotion out of it because you're not particularly comfortable. And then disorganized attachment is, of course, you, you actually experience both. And oftentimes we will try to fit with another person. So if another person is really kind of leaning in, you'll avoid. And then if the person's avoiding, you'll do the opposite and you'll start to lean in or grasp. So those are the three attachment styles or the, the insecure, attachment styles and then there's secure attachment which, which is where as a child your caregiver they responded when you cried when you smiled they smiled back and so you were able to relate and learn that the world is a safe place but you were also able to learn that you are your own self and your caregiver is separate from yourself hmm. so well organized a friend of mine is a child psychiatrist for anyone that might think this is hocus pocus, this is how they evaluate all their clients. They go in and they look at how it was when they were raised and what sort of attachment style they have to determine how they would treat said child or adult. And, and I would say that myself, I probably am disorganized, but I started having a weird relationship with food probably around the age of 13. And uh, a boy made a comment about my body. He said, like, she's fat. And before that moment, I actually didn't even really think that I was my body. And then I started to compare it to other people. And it was a nasty road. You know, I struggled with uh, bulimia for many years. And then I would refrain from eating for many years. And 
yeah, like for anyone who's ever struggled with the the body, forever I thought it was a superficial thing. And I remember thinking, this is so silly, people are, are dying of cancer, and here I am needing help because I think I'm fat. But it was so much more than that. And I find myself when I'm in like social settings, particularly familial, I feel this very bizarre either desire to binge or to not eat at all. Lydia, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, well, I, 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 similar to you, I started having um, kind of a awareness of my body in comparison to others, probably around eight years old, nine years old, really, really young. Um, I think because, like Kelsey was saying, because of situations in the home, I wasn't really in contact with my wholeness at that age. And that led me to constantly look outside of myself for validation. So that led me to comparing at a really young age. And then I had an eating disorder. I started an eating disorder really quite young. I'd say probably, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, I started to restrict. Um, you know, even had thoughts of it, of it before that. So that was my path with it. And I'm curious, Kelsey, on uh, because in my study with eating disorders and my own healing, I really look at it as an addiction. Um, and I'm curious about the attachment styles and addiction. Um, or is that something that you're researching as well? Yeah, Lydia, that's such a great question. Addiction is such is so prevalent, I think, in our in our society. Um, and in regards to attachment, because people with insecure attachments, which is actually quite a lot of us, I think insecure attachments are majority of people, unfortunately. And when you develop as at a very young age an insecure attachment, you start to have these, they call them maladaptive coping strategies. So adaptive coping strategies is to cry when you're hurt. And when someone responds to you, you know that that's a really great mechanism to tell others that you're hurting. And if you're responded to well, you'll learn that that's a good thing to use when you're sad. Um, but a lot of us are taught that, you know, you'll be ignored um, or, your, your, your crying is not welcome. It's a show of emotion, which you probably shouldn't do. So we, we have these ways of adapting and it's, and it's maladaptive. Um, so maybe overexerting yourself or again, like hiding away if you're avoiding the attached. And then the addiction comes in, I, I believe, when you find something that allows you to feel some sense of relief and my thought around eating disorders and attachment theory is, and I think it's very interesting, Erin, that you say that you have, you, you most likely have a disorganized attachment and then that you also sway from the binging and purging and restricting because that's the two sides of the coin as well. So for example, I guess, Lydia, maybe you're, in friendship with someone in your elementary years or your junior high years and you 
are made fun of maybe. And if you have an avoidant attachment style, you are, you feel, okay, so you feel bullied, but you're uncomfortable with the emotion because you don't know how to digest and emote properly. You, maybe you know when you go home, you won't be met with love and care and soothing. And so you react by restricting because you're in control of that. And that helps you digest that feeling of unworthiness by projecting that onto the body by saying, well, you're not good enough, so I'm not going to feed you. And it helps you kind of digest that emotion. And because you almost feel a rush of control, then the addiction kicks in to be like, I want to feel that way again. So the next time I'm bullied or next time I feel that that sense of someone doesn't like me, well, whatever, I'm going to turn away from the, the healthy adaptive way it would be to talk to someone about it and to deal with the emotion. But because you have no tolerance for emotion, you kind of channel that into your food and you're like, well, I'm hungry. Nope, you're not good enough. I'm going to restrict. And the feeling of that restriction is a sense of control and it perpetuates the addiction. So I think it does tie in really, really well because it you, it's like a self-serving loop. Oh, I'm going to restrict. Oh, that feels good. Okay, the next time I'm in a situation where I need to feel emotion, I'm going to do that other thing that makes me feel good, which is the control piece. I find it fascinating, Lids, that you use the word wholeness. Whole comes from an old English word, hail, which is entire, unhurt, whole, uninjured, safe, and healthy. And when I think about the concept of wholeness, it is complete and harmonious. The body, the mind, the soul is one. And every therapist will tell you that each of us has this moment during childhood where we break away from self. Something is so overwhelming that we feel hurt or unsafe. And I don't know the moment I felt unsafe, but I definitely developed addictive patterns to try to process these big, intense emotions that I didn't know how to deal with. I'm one, the one tricky thing I found with an eating disorder at a young age was say, I had a different sort of addiction and it was apparent to people, then there'd be, um, you know, more outward, um, maybe stigmatizing around it or, or, you know, maybe more outward shaming around it. Whereas with an eating disorder, uh, people would often comment in a positive way around my appearance. And so that was the really sticky thing for me because I was always looking for outside validation. And then that became something that actually supported my validation. So I don't know if either of you had that experience. Um, I still feel like I have that experience as an adult, as a mother, that um, people still comment on my appearance. Yeah, and right now I'm, I'm working really hard with language. So I'm working with trauma-informed work in, in somatic education and yoga facilitation and pain care language for folks that are dealing with persistent pain. And I think the power of language is it's incredible and we still as a society continue to comment on people's bodies with knowing so little about 
that person and how that might affect them. And I think anyone who's had an eating disorder knows that any comment on the body can be triggering, whether it's positive, seemingly positive in this cultural lens that we might have or negative. So that's something that I've been really interested in about in my own language and with my children. Can you, for the listener, any suggestions on how you would address it? I know we wouldn't be like, wow, you look so beautiful today. Is there, is there a way to, to speak in a way that is not triggering? I think calling, saying someone looks beautiful is totally legit. I think we all want to be heard that we're like, or uh, sorry, we all want to be told that we're beautiful. I want to be told that I'm beautiful every day because I am. And so are you. And so is everybody else. It's more of those specific comments. I feel like about size, uh, those comments are even about like, wow, you lost weight. Like you look great in those jeans where that could be really triggering for that person. And they might also think like, what does that mean that last week or the week before I didn't look great or, and if someone has a history with this, it's like the, I mean, addictions, there's, there's so many different ways people can get triggered, but with an eating disorder, people are triggered every moment they see a plate of food and every moment someone says anything about their appearance, I think as well. And then so many other things too. So it's just, we never know what people's triggers are. Yeah. And I remember when then people wouldn't comment on my weight, I'd be like, oh my God, am I disgusting? Oh <laughs> shoot, I must've put on weight. And, and it seems so silly as, as something that you would determine your worth for, but we don't know self. The only way we know self is through comparison and competition. And we're yogis, and for the listener, you likely have a spiritual bend, but like what we're looking for is that essence within us that is like unshakable, that is the beautifulness that lights the eyes, that is the intonation of someone's voice that's so beyond skin deep. But in this culture where we're bombarded with images of fitness models, and even my son, he notices like, I want to be really strong when I grow up. And I'm like, oh, baby, why don't you just be kind? Um, and I'm curious, Kelsey, I'd throw that back to you with relation to the attachment styles. What is one to do when they're disorganized? Yeah, and that's, that's the tough part is because they're just so used to leaning into their ways of being, which is to binge and purge because that's how they get this feeling of I guess what Lydia you said is it's almost whole but it's not because as you keep leaning into these strategies of of making sure your body is within a certain limit you're you're kind of pushing out the rest of the world our the narrative of society you're right like it's it's so so challenging to recognize another and tell them their worth without using body image. We're so used to saying, oh, you've lost weight. And Lydia, do you want to say more on that? You raised your hand. I really do because um, I've just been in my conversations with people recently. I've been noticing these subtleties about our culture on how we place value on aestheticism, intellectualism, ableism. And I hear it all the time now. It's almost like I've decolonized my viewpoint 
to the point where I see beauty, beautiful, everyone is beautiful. I see it all around me, but it's not the cultural lens right now. So yeah, I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on that, but it's almost like I'm flooded with that viewpoint, that lens right now and how when, because of insecure attachment for myself, I didn't, I didn't see that. It's taken me 40 years to see that um, every day, you know? So, and, and how freeing is that? Um, yeah. And, 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 also, and also it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard to see it all around and to see that's what our children are growing up in. But I also, one thing for, that's really important for me is that I'm not going to be jaded. I am hopeful and, you know, keeping that at the center. Yeah. And I, and I think what you just said articulates it beautifully. How do we change it? We be the change we start to decolonize you as the listener start to pay attention to what you deem as valuable oh they're smart oh they're beautiful oh they're super talented at athletics my mom was visiting and uh my old roommate had moved to the fogo island and she said i love the fogo island because the people are so kind and my mom said yeah i guess you don't need to be out running mountains and doing great feats for people to like you. And I thought, whoa, she kind of hit the nail on the head. In that so much of our community is based on physical feats and athleticism, and that's deemed as notable. And not to say there aren't a lot of other things we honor and find interesting. Yeah, yeah. We, especially here in the Bow Valley, we have such a high regard for Olympic athletes and people who just excel so much in their sport, climbing, yoga, hiking, and social media really hypes that up. I think people really are, really struggle with kind of turning on their phones and seeing the top 10% of everyone's life and thinking that that's just their normal. And you're right, Erin, it's, it's kind of consistently coming back to this idea that you are enough all the time, waking up, reminding yourself, you are enough but it's it's a hard practice it's a hard practice whenever you walk out into the world and you know someone comments on your weight or your size um same as you ladies i was 13 and i was digging into my backpack at school and someone walked by and just ran their finger along my my upper arm and said man you have chicken wings and i was like what? And same with you, Erin. I had no idea that my body was any different or any worse or better than anybody else's. I'd never looked at myself in the mirror in a kind of condescending way, but that started it for me. And now I guess that's, I'm trying to do quick math here, like 18 years ago, I'm still, I can still remember that uh, vividly, but now it's, it's kind of like a, just trying to meet those thoughts when they come up. Um, I'm, I would say that myself, I'm an avoidant attached and I restrict when I get stressed out. Um, but it's always meeting myself there, feeling that feeling of, oh, I don't, I no longer want to eat. I want to shut down because this is too much for me. It's too much emotion. But then having to remind myself right after that thought that no, that's, that's 
not the right way. It's not supportive of you. You deserve food. It's kind of like having to talk yourself down, but it's 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 constant, right? It's an everyday thing. The voice is very insidious, and it can be, um, and it comes in waves, right? And with attachment, I think my my interest is how not not so much how do we solve the eating disorder how do we start to heal the attachment underneath the eating disorder that shows you that there are other ways of being that are way more supportive for you feeling what you need to feel mm-hmm. and let's go there for a moment for someone who is anxious anxiously attached where they're hyper emotional and when someone's not around they feel like something's missing they want to people please and if i have a bad mood they're going to pick up on it as their bad mood how does someone like that shift it one millimeter i mean we're all yogis and i like for me what what really helps and i know erin you've had nikki fortin on your podcast in the past and i mean i've listened to those podcasts over and over for me what helps is the grounding the stopping of the thought where even if you have to start repeating facts to yourself you know my name is kelsey loomer i live here I, my phone number is this just allowing that feeling of anxious of anxiety of flight just allowing that feeling to pass because it takes about 90 seconds in the body and if that if the grounding of the standing still doesn't work it's shaking your body it's going for a run it's it's allowing that stress or that trauma to work its way through the body and ending its stress cycle rather than sitting and ruminating with that thought so if you can ground or if you can do something with that emotion and just sit with it for that 90 seconds without attaching your thought to it you can help yourself separate from that thought of I need to go find that bag of chips it's and it because it it's it's so addictive you can run to it and it'll solve that that issue but again that perpetuates the addiction so I think it's it's just a commitment to yourself to notice and to sit with that uncomfortable feeling um or even just texting a friend that's a safe person for you. Um, just some, doing something else that kind of cuts that addictive thought, even though it's, and it is a, it's a really tough one. You have to commit. Yeah, that was a light bulb moment for me. Thank you. Mm. It really was because it's so in, it's so in my narrative and it's so repetitive to do what I've always done. Before we close, my my favorite quote is, we are the teachers that we never had. And so for each of us, I would love, Lids, what advice or what would you say to little eight-year-old Lydia? She was probably wearing a tutu, much like Mesa. Her hair was probably wild. What would you tell her? Uh, What's actually coming up for me right now is maybe not my eight-year-old self, but a little later on when I could have a better idea of really conceptualizing these things. But I think one thing that helps me with the shame around it, around because I think with a lot of addiction, there's a lot of shame. But what helps me is to know that, that that was a 
coping mechanism that allowed me to take the next step towards my healing. So looking at it, sorry, there's construction in my background, (laughs) but looking at it like that, taking away that it was, uh, you know, I always thought it was stupid that I did that. Like it was unintellectual. And that was another one of my fears is to be seen as uh, not smart, you know, and, and then, but knowing that all coping mechanisms are, are a stepping place that are actually necessary to look at the next part of healing. And that is something that's really supported me along the way. It served a purpose. It protected you. And that's what, like, if everything is energy, you developed this entity that was looking out for your best good at the time, but then you got older, your skills changed, your abilities changed. So then you, that that energy needs a different purpose. And Mm -hmm. then to you, Kay, what would you say? What would you say to her? I touch your little wing and I say, oh, you have a a bingo wing. Oh my God. What kind of a person would do that? I know, I know. And you know, it was such an innocent comment and I think many times they are. Uh, I would would tell myself, you know, you can take up space in this world Mm because I think my eating disorder and my restrictive kind of avoidant nature tends to make me pretty quiet. And I would tell myself that you can you can be bigger and you can live large and it's okay to speak up. Um, and just reminding myself of the moments that I've had of, of pure joy are the moments when I, I let myself eat, I let myself laugh with an open mouth and I'm, I'm silly and just just validating that experience. You know, Lydia, I really agree with you. I think these things pop up in our world to, to, to be teachers. We reflect, we were reflected back what we need to work on within ourselves and within our community. And I think eating disorders are a really interesting way to navigate healing. Um, so yeah, I would just tell my younger self that it's okay. Like it, you can, you can be big and you can have emotions and that living large is, I mean, it's scary. <laughs> it's very scary, but it's, it's so worth it. Mm-hmm. And Aaron? Yeah. I think I always had a copious amount of energy and it was wild, unbridled energy. And I think that that moment that person said what they said, I was like, oh, you need to fit in fit into your skinny jeans, fit into the cool kid crowd. And I think I would have said to her, like, you just, you just don't fit in. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is your greatest ally. And that's what makes you so exceptional. I would also say, extend the same kindness that you extend to everyone, you know, because I look at other people and all I see is beauty. And then I looked at me and I was like, oh my God, your nose, your eyes, your height, everything. And yeah, it's my, it's my affirmation is like, you're just as beautiful as every being on the planet. Well, this has been an absolute honor to sit with two of my favorites. Any closing words? Well, I just wanted to thank you both for this time together. I really appreciate both of your opinions and your presence. It's, it's always amazing to hang out in any way. And I also want to say too that like I I love it when people 
say nice things about other people. And I love it when people are out doing badass things. And then there's also like quieter spaces that deserve recognition. And I think if we can just like see that um, as a society, that there can be really positive change with that. Everybody has a place and everything is equally beautiful, but different. I know Kelsey and I are on this Ram Das kick. Well, who isn't? And he talks about uh, that you have a role to play and you have to play your role really, really well. And that means if you sweep the streets, then you sweep those streets like like it meant the world to you. And if you are a mother, you you treat that like it's the most important thing ever. And I hear that in what you're saying is like, let everybody play out their part and you play yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just knowing that each person needs a different type of validation. And so, you know, I have friends that need to be told that their hair looks beautiful that day. And so I will do that. And and my friends know that for me, it's to never comment on my size. And, and so I think it's a listening and a learning of what each person needs. And we can, we can start to kind of just greet each other where we're at. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, it's a lesson for sure. And it's always a learning because it will shift too. Mm-hmm. we grow and we need different things. Maybe next year I'll need to be told that I'm, I'm pretty, but you know, that it, it shifts. And I think we just need to be a little quieter, like you said, Lydia, and, and really start to listen. And yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I'll close with a Ram Das quote. We are all just walking one another home. Thank you so much, you two. And to the listener, I appreciate your attention. And till next time, pay closer attention. I love you.